0: breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. I'm John McCaskill, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the Veterans Path podcast. This podcast is just a piece of what we do. Veterans Path is actually a nonprofit working to introduce veterans and active service members to meditation and mindfulness typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of veterans' path, increase attendance at our retreats, so we're able to help more veterans, and finally, to reduce the stigma around mindfulness and meditation and seeking mental health support. Listeners and viewers, if you're enjoying the show, Please give us a review or a like and share the show with anyone and everyone you think could benefit from our message. Also, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Today my guest is Rich Gerling. Rich is a certified mindfulness trainer, a retired police officer and Coast Guard veteran who believes in your innate resilience, humanity and capacity to show up and thrive amidst hard circumstances. Richard specializes in training health, resilience, and human performance skills to first responders and other high-reliability professionals. One of Rich's current projects is being trained by a therapy canine named Buddha, so they can work as a team to bring joy and mindfulness skills to first responders and veterans. We're going to learn a lot more about Rich, his Coast Guard and police service, his work with human performance, his role in the new mindfulness movie, The Mindfulness Movement, and his mindfulness training, And that's all here in today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is retired Coast Guard veteran, retired police officer, and mindfulness teacher, Richard Gerling. Welcome to the show, Rich.
1: Thanks, John. Really great to be here.
0: Yeah, appreciate it. You've got a heck of a background, man. Uh, So retired from the Coast Guard um, as a commander, um, and then retired from law enforcement, too, so you've lived kind of several lives here. Um, how have you managed to do that?
1: <laughs> well, so my Coast Guard career is primarily on the reserve side. Um, I have about six or seven years of active duty, um, and the rest is uh, 21. You know, So 27 years total, but the rest of that is, uh, is on the reserve side. I started my Coast Guard career as a reservist, and I finished my Coast Guard career as a reservist. Uh, and so my law enforcement career, um, after my first active duty tour, it started in in the reserve career and the law enforcement career just paralleled together um, until about five years ago when I retired from the Coast Guard Reserve uh, and continued working in policing. And I just last year retired from policing.
0: Wow. So, yeah, you've been a busy guy, man. Uh, my wife <laughs> was uh, enlisted in the uh, Coast Guard Reserve and then uh, and then got a commission in the United States Navy uh, and then got out of the Navy about, uh, two years ago this summer. Um, she did not retire. Nice. She did uh, 10 years in the Navy and now her sister. So my sister-in-law is enlisted in the Navy. Oh, sorry. Enlisted in the coast guard. Uh, so we've got some coast guard ties as well. And then as far as the reserve side, um, I don't think I've truly appreciated the reserve side of the Navy or any, um, service for that matter until I, I personally transferred from active duty to what we call in the Navy, and I'm not sure what it's called in the in the Coast Guard, but in the Navy, we call it full-time support. So people that manage the reservists and make sure that they're able to mobilize, et cetera. And when I started working with the reservists and I saw them kind of juggling their civilian career while they're maintaining all their qualifications uh, and all the administrative stuff that comes with being a, a reservist, it's a, it is a tough job uh, to, to manage all that. So uh, kudos to you for the service that you have given, and uh, for the time that you have given, and then juggling—if uh, I read it right on your LinkedIn, I <clears throat> mentioned your reserve time was in Charleston, South Carolina, and you're out in Portland, uh, Oregon. So flying between those two, what once a month to do your training, or or how did that work?
1: Yeah. So um, the last three years of my Coast Guard Reserve career, <clears throat> I was assigned to uh, Coast Guard Sector Charleston. In South Carolina, and I basically flew probably about every six weeks. I flew from Portland to Charleston. It, you know, it's really rough to be in Charleston, South Carolina. It's a beautiful place. Um, it's fun. That uh, it was at the top of my dream sheet for the first choice as a you know as master. Um, I have beautifully I think that probably does it and maybe it's how some other services do it. But when you get to that oh five level, your transportation costs are all on you. So um so I spent my my drill pay if you will um paying for a commercial flight to Charleston.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah wow. So yeah you didn't get any you didn't get much out of it financially. Uh every, every weekend that you flew out there, but, uh, but you got a retirement out of it. So that's good.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, and I will acknowledge, um, for, for all the folks who are are laughing at me right now saying, Oh, Oh, you know, it's a poor commander. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I will take all, I will take all of that criticism. Um, I'm, I'm not, you know, singing a sad song. It's just, I'm just kind of chuckling here. Cause, um, but it was a, it was a fantastic, uh, final tour. Um, I got to work with uh, a number of Coast Guard Reserve and active duty members <clears throat> in, a, in a law enforcement capacity. So it was, uh, it, yeah, it was just wonderful to finish there.
0: Nice. Well, before we get too far into the show or much further, outside of your professional bio, uh, what can you tell us about Rich that can help us truly appreciate who you are, Like things like family makeup, hobbies, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so John, I have two uh, two teenage daughters. I have a senior in high school uh, and a freshman in high school, um, and a pretty remarkable uh, partner who's a she's a college professor of psychology. Um, and so, two days ago, my daughters came to me and said, "Dad, you have to take this personality test." So there's this this personality test called 16 pers- I think it's called 16 personalities. So I took this personality test with them, and I've taken a lot, like you. You know, we take personality tests for all kinds of reasons, right? Yeah. And I took this personality test, and it you know it fifty one years old, this test was spot on, and I just laughed because basically um, if you want to know about me i'm um, it frames me as a uh, an aggressive i think the term was aggressive mediator um or or said differently a diplomat um, somebody who <laughs> who doesn't fit well within systems? somebody who's constantly sort of visioning forward, who maybe doesn't have the best skills of, of uh, sort of micromanagement of, of things, but can vision forward and carry out, you know, um, uh, a vision. And I just laughed because I thought, you know, I spent all this time in policing and all this time in the Coast Guard and, and I never fully fit in you know i was always um and part of it you know my dad went to berkeley so he in some way always taught me to question authority and even his own authority which was always an interesting challenge between he and i but um yeah you know i think i'm i'm a a a strategic thinker and um really believe deeply in in the beauty and the resolve of people even when people behave badly um, always strive to look for hope, um, always strive to look for, you know, how we can come together as communities and, um, and really optimize this human experience. Cause we only get one, you know, as far as, you know, as far as we know. Right. And yeah. uh, so, um, so I think that that might help kind of frame who I am. I, I love to seek adventure. Um, and, you know, so play and activity is really important to me. Um, I, it's also really, really important to me as a, as a male, as a man to, um, raise my daughters and empower them to go out in the world and and not allow, not allow the the gender biased systems that exist in the world to oppress them. Um, or at least to push, push up against that because a single individual in a system, the system's going to win, but we can all come together and, and create slow system change. So um, in some way, I'm a little bit of kind of a radical um, participant inside policing and inside, you know, the Coast Guard. Uh, fortunately, though, the Coast Guard really, my experience was the Coast Guard really embraced that. There were times where my, my command would come to me and say, hey, we need somebody who is, you know, an outside the box thinker, somebody who's going to challenge us. So when we tell you to sit down and be quiet, we need you to do that. But until then challenge me, you know? (laughs) Um, and so that was kind of a role that I played, uh, not a contrarian, just to be a contrarian, but a contrarian to ensure that we were, we were, you know, kind of on the, on the path that was the best possible path for us to be on.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. A couple of things there. Um, the, uh, the founders of veterans path, uh, were from Berkeley, Uh, So got a little bit of Berkeley in in veterans path there. And then uh, as far as your daughters, are they in school right now? you mentioned, I think, a freshman and a uh, senior. senior? Are they? So is that is that their next year or is that where they are right now? And they're getting advanced. That's
1: where they are. Yeah, that's where they are now. So my senior basically is finishing up her senior year with Zoom calls and Google Hangout. Wow, that's so tough. Oh, it's, it is. It's, you know, yeah. So you talk about, you know, grieving transitions, you know, military members grieving, leaving the service and yeah. critically, critically important. We have a whole generation of kiddos who, you know, hopefully we can help them to grieve the loss of their senior year, yeah. you know, whether it's college or, or high school or, you know, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tough situation. Um, but kids are, kids are tougher than, than we think they are. You know, I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And I'm sure you've given them some uh, resilience uh, training as well, or or, uh, definitely uh, knowing, (laughs) knowing their father, they they probably have it ingrained in them already in their DNA. So that's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, Let's,
1: let's hope, right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can only imagine, you know, um, a senior in high school, I, uh, I ran track and cross country and, you know, my senior year we did really well in track and, I can only imagine having that senior season cut short uh, for uh, some who wanted to go to prom, you know, maybe not going to prom. Uh, And then in, in college, I mean, some of the folks who are playing NCAA basketball or whatever, and they didn't get to go to March madness. uh, uh, Yeah. It's just a a wild time that we are living through for sure. Um, Yeah. So as far as uh, your work in the coast guard, what did, I know you, you're an officer, you retired as a commander. What, what did you actually do in the
1: coast guard? Well, I want to kind of go back and tell you kind of my origin story in the. Oh yeah, please. It, it, I think it has it has some relevance here. So I was 18 years old. Um, my my father was a army combat veteran, World War II veteran. He he had me in his 40s. So. Um, and my uh, hey, uncle I'm, was I'm like, right there. I've got yeah, a one year
0: old, and I'm four, yeah, almost 43.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was a kid, it was unusual. Now it's the norm. You know, yeah. I'm like, hey, Dad, you set a trend. Um, <laughs> my uncle also combat veteran, in World War II. My brother uh, was an Air Force combat controller, and um, when I was when I was uh, in high school, um, he, he's a, a bit older than me. He was killed in a plane crash in in Zaragoza, Spain. So, oh wow, nearly nearly his whole team perished in a in a crash, um, and. And so I had always wanted to be in the military and he was just this amazing mentor and coach for me. And I thought about, you know, like, well, I sh- what service do I want to go? And I thought, well, my brother was, you know, in the air force in this, you know, special ops role, my, my old man and uncle were army. I thought, well, what's different, what's unique. And I thought, well, what's the coast guard all about, you know? So I, I frankly chose the coast guard because it was a, sort of, wildly different than anything my family had known. And, um, so, so this is the piece that I I still, I haven't talked about this in a long, long time. So I went down to the Coast Guard recruiter in Portland and I enlisted delayed entry. So I enlisted into the Coast Guard Reserve delayed entry because one of the things my brother said to me was you will go to college or I'll kick your ass. Right. (laughs) So, um, so I enlisted in the Coast Guard Reserve six month delayed entry and I didn't know how to swim. I was terrified of the water. Wow. And but what I what I knew was that there was a challenge there for me that if I went and enlisted, I, you know, couldn't go back from that. So I'm like, okay, okay, so I went and did that. And and then it's like, well, I better learn to swim. And so I went down to community college here in Portland and took an adult beginning swim class, right? And to this day, I can still I can I can visualize this and describe how terrified I was when I stepped into the water. And just thinking to myself, oh my God. And you know, I was terrified. And when I look back at that moment, that was a beautiful moment of mindfulness. That was a moment of, I was in tune with my body. I could feel the anxiety, the fear. I could, I, yeah, I, I can feel the, the warmth of the water the coolness of the outside air. It was an outside pool, 50 meters. And I can, I still remember looking down, you know, at this 50 meter pool going, Oh my, you know, um, I think I just made a mistake. And, (laughs) but you know, I showed up, I showed up and I continued to show up. And, and now if, you know, we get in the pool together, you'd never know that I didn't grow up swimming. Wow. Um, and so for me, I think that, mindfulness was, was a huge part of that. And I didn't even know what the word meant or I, it wasn't even part of my world. Like I didn't say, Oh, I'm going to go be practice mindfulness and swim. But the point about that is that, that I think one is that for me, it was, that's how I joined the coast guard. Um, and two is that most of us well, all of us in some way have, have been practicing this thing called mindfulness our entire lives. Right. Um, we didn't call it that doesn't matter, but we've, we've been attuned to certain experiences and we've also practiced the lack of attention. You know, you know, we've been disconnected or disassociated with different experiences, but um, for me, that experience, I, I look back at that and it just, it was an amazing experience. Um, it prepped me. I had this amazing swim coach and she was just phenomenal Um she prepped me to go to basic and do things in the water. And then later um, I spent four years in the reserve, went to college, finished college, and then uh, went to officer candidate school, went active duty. Um, And then later, you know, in officer candidate school, we got to do more fun stuff in the water, not nearly as much fun stuff, you know, that that you got to do, Uh, (laughs) but I was totally prepared for that, you know, and when I was in the middle of the uh, Bering Sea in a, you know, 14 foot rigid hole inflatable going from my, you know, high endurance cutter to some 80-foot crab boat. I was perfectly comfortable knowing that, well, if something goes wrong, I'm I'm okay here. I mean, you know, um, it's hard to hard to compete with uh the forces of Mother Nature, but I'll do the best I can, right? So um, yeah, it was just a beautiful experience. And and I think so many of us have these moments in our life where we've really been attuned to the body to emotion to our thinking and we've you know fought through it and succeeded and and what we're doing I think with mindfulness training what you and I are and many of others folks that are doing is we're just bringing us back to where we've come from right we're not teaching anything new so I just wanted to kind of frame that as a, oh, as a that. fun that's, example
0: that's fantastic I love it it's a great story I, I've got I've got some similar things like that too but again like you mentioned, I didn't have it called mindfulness when I was in tune with uh, either the nerves that I was feeling, the anxiety, um, but I wasn't even judging, right? I wasn't judging those experiences. I was just going through them and acknowledging them. That's what mindfulness is. Uh, I love that, uh, that you shared that with us. So thank you for that. As, uh, as far you. as then, then, then uh, you went into uh, enlisted, did your reserve time enlisted? Uh, what were you as enlisted uh, man?
1: As, as an enlisted um, kid, I was um, I was what the Coast Guard calls a port security man, but I, again, defied the system. Um, I asked the Coast Guard to send me to a small boat station on the Oregon coast, so I went there, and I became a, a crew member on a 44-foot motor lifeboat, so I'd roll in. It was one of the greatest experiences of my college life. I'd roll in on a Friday evening to the station um, with, with another buddy of mine, and two of the two of the active duty crew went home and we stayed there till Sunday evening. And we nice. took the watch. Um, we worked with the active duty uh, crew of the lifeboat and we got underway when they got underway. We, you know, of course we probably cleaned the boats more than the other guys did, but you know, there's some rite of passage there. Yeah, sure. um, so, so I spent, I spent uh, you know, <clears throat> four years doing that um, in central Oregon coast. And then uh, active duty, I went to OCS in Yorktown, Virginia, not far from where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Just down the street. Um, it's it, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, fell in love with Virginia, beautiful place. And, um, and then I served on a, uh, high endurance coast guard cutter, cutter Hamilton out of Los Angeles. And this is great, John. So I was like, I picked LA cause I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going to go to LA beach volleyball surfing, you know? <laughs> so I get there. And within 30 days, you know, we're underway and I'm going to Alaska, right? And I'm like, what the hell? Um, but, but, you know, so I spent I spent so much time in Alaska. Um, really up there, we were primarily conducting search and rescue missions for the fishing fleet and, and also doing some um, what we used to call enforcement of laws and treaties. I'm not sure what the Coast Guard calls that now. But basically, you know, boarding fishing vessels and ensuring that, you know, they're not... Um, violating, you know, the, the rules around fishing and that sort of thing. So I got introduced to law enforcement, um, then, uh, never had any interest in law enforcement prior to that, but the, the LE stuff was a lot of fun. Um, I, after that tour, I went to the Coast Guard's, um, law enforcement Academy as an instructor and spent some time there and then transitioned from active duty to the reserve side. Uh, I took a, a federal law enforcement job, uh, for a couple of years, um, and did a lot of task force work with local and state law enforcement down in LA and really kind of wanted some more adventure than what a sort of a white collar criminal investigator would give me. So I, um, decided, okay, I'm going to become a cop and just experience that. My intention was to be a police officer for a few years, go to grad school and then go teach or go do something different. Right. I was still kind of young and maybe kind of foolish, naive. Um, and so I took a job up here in Oregon because uh, we wanted to kind of get back to our roots here in, in the Northwest. And I I worked there for um, for about four years. I went to grad school, just graduated with my MBA, and then 9 happened, and I, I, it was really difficult to leave uh, policing. But I also uh, was recalled, recalled to active duty for a couple of years working in the working in the Coast Guard's maritime um, security domain. And um, so I spent a couple of years in active duty, working mostly West Coast, a little bit of time in D.C. And I had the opportunity to to really see law enforcement at the state, tribal, federal, or I'm sorry, the the federal, tribal, state, local levels, um, because we were bringing all these stakeholders together in various ports, you know, sharing information in ways we'd never shared information and doing strategic planning and tactical planning and doing you know, tactical operations. And, um, you know, here in Oregon, we we went up the Columbia River, we took a bunch of SWAT teams with a bunch of Coast Guard law enforcement teams and, and some uh, logging tugboats. And we did some really interesting, um, underway live fire shooting exercises with with small arms, right stuff that, you know, you've done a lot, but that, you know, the local law enforcement had never had access to. So we had all kinds of really interesting training and we deep into the belly of the dams in the Columbia River just to get a sense of what they look like and you know how to protect that infrastructure and um, I mean, it was just really an amazing experience. And what also was amazing was just the lens I had of the the stress, the occupational stressors of of that time of sort of the psychology of terrorism coming um, coming home. Um, And just the operational tempos of all these agencies were just really, really stretched. And so I started to pay attention to really, to trauma injury. And um, when I came back from active duty, uh, back to the police department, I was a a patrol sergeant and started noticing how we had these young cops, these young, healthy men and women who were on light duty because of an injury or who, you know, we're having surgery on their back when, you know, they're like, they were a college athlete and they're, you know, not even 30 years old and, and they're dealing with, with a physical injury. And then also the, the sort of the psychological injuries, the other kinds of trauma injuries showing up that weren't often talked about, but I was able to build trust with people and kind of learn like, okay, wow, that's really, that's going on. Okay. Well, that's normal. Let's, you know, let's work with that. And so in some way I became a student of occupational stress and trauma and of humanity, um, And really, I, I think of human performance. <clears throat> and I started studying how we can address sort of the police citizen encounter, and how do we how do we improve it? right? How do we prepare these men and women in uniform to really optimally perform in that encounter, no matter what the encounter is, whether it's, you know meeting violence with violence or just simply having a conversation with somebody who, you know, it's just a benign social interaction. Right. How do we improve that? Because one of the things that I started to notice in myself and in others was um, we lose our skill of compassion when we are constantly exposed to human suffering. And and we often refer to this as compassion fatigue. Right. Um, right. It's it it's more correctly, I think, seen as as empathic distress because it's really empathy that we're that we're eroding Um, compassion is a really interesting thing and so I started exploring this notion of of compassion and in its relationship to health and performance and it took me a few years to kind of really come to a, a landing point but what I what I really landed on and I hold this to this day is that Training skills, not, not cognitive information, so not teaching knowledge, but training skills in these domains of awareness, so attention, and this other domain of compassion, humanity, is really the gateway to optimizing human performance, no matter what that looks like, whether it's for a police officer, for a parent, or for you know the restaurant owner, the chef, the you know, waitress, it doesn't matter what we're doing. But- cultivating skills and awareness and compassion really sort of became like this aha moment for me like okay and then how do we do that that becomes really interesting um i became convinced that mind body interventions were were the path forward and i looked at a lot of different elite performance training communities um i looked at uh what what your community was doing you know what visibility i could get on your community Um, i looked at professional athletes i looked at I looked at non-professional athletes and these are some of the, my favorite people. This is like the fifth grade school teacher who runs triathlons and not just triathlons, but now she's running an iron man. Right. Yeah. And she's kicking ass on this Ironman, man. And she's also, you know, she's a parent, you know, she's a spouse, she's a fifth grade teacher. And it's like, how do you do that? You know, you talk <laughs> about elite. Um, and I, so, so I interviewed some of those folks, and without question, there was some kind of mind-body intervention. It was like, oh, yeah, I practice yoga, I practice meditation, or, or both, or I'm into Tai Chi, or I also do this other martial arts thing. And it was like, interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And for these communities of people who are really intent on just using science to educate themselves and then using science to coach themselves into greater levels of performance, um, Mind body intervention was just like oh yeah what's the big deal yeah meditation what's the big deal right it wasn't even there was no stigma it was like well yeah if you want to really get skilled at something you need to really know yourself right yeah. and and then you know studying some some wisdom traditions whether they're you know go to the Greek culture and look at wisdom traditions we look at you know how do we how do we understand ourselves there, there were so many forces pointing me towards mindfulness meditation. And I was introduced to it by a local yoga teacher, a local mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher here, a guy named Brant Rogers, who's just phenomenal. Um, and I took my first MBSR course. And, and actually what I did was I got five other cops with me and said, hey, let's take this eight-week mindfulness course. And of course, we all agreed to do it, but none of us would do it together. We're like, this is way too weird. I'm not going to be in the same class with you, John, but I'll go <laughs> take it on my own, right? So, so we did. And this is about 2006, I think. And um, we all took the course and we kind of came back together. And I remember week six, getting a call from one of the detectives, this this really quintessential Renaissance man, detective named Sean. And Sean calls me up on the phone. He's like, Hey, Rich, I got to tell you, it's week six, dude. I don't know what happened in there, but it was kind of magical, you know? (laughs) And, um, and so, you get you get feedback like that from these badass police officers who are like, "Yeah, there's something there that's really helpful." And then, of course, it was like, "And there's some stuff that's really kind of woo-woo that makes us uncomfortable, right?" Yeah. So I'm like, "Okay, fair enough." So I started to sort of un- unpack that, the woo-woo and the science, and basically took the science and said, "Okay, yeah, there's something here about this thing we call mindfulness that can have a deep positive impact on our health and well-being." And so that was really kind of the beginning of mindfulness and policing.
0: Wow, man, that's that's awesome, and I love that you got eight eight total law enforcement officers to go through the MBSR course. Though you didn't go through together, the fact that you got eight to go through that's uh, that's pretty powerful. Um, uh, so yeah, um, as far as once you're uh, in your training. What did, uh, what did your training actually consist of for you
1: to become a mindfulness teacher? So for me, um, I'll give you a little background to that. So for, for probably for the first five or six years, I, I didn't teach mindfulness, I advocated mindfulness. So I brought in other teachers. And so Brant, Brant and I partnered with the local university, uh, Pacific University, there's a school of graduate psychology, we partnered with a guy named uh, Mike Christopher, who's a doctor of psychology, and we started re- developing training that we could deliver to to research. So we built a, uh, a kind of a modified MBSR course. It's we call it Mindfulness-Based Resilience Training. Nice. It's a model that um, very similar to MBSR, with it's just more gritty, you know, more trauma competent. Yeah, and and I spent. I spent a minimum of three years inside my own organization socializing the science of mindfulness with our key training folks, with our canine folks, with our SWAT folks, uh, really building relationship. Because at the end of the day, um, you introduce new things through relationship. You don't introduce new things through logic, you know, so it's cultivating trust, cultivating relationship. And we were, we got to a point in 2013, we had some, we had some pretty serious organizational trauma. One of our police officers had an off-duty uh, domestic violence incident where he ended up getting in a shootout with his friends uh, on the SWAT team. And um, it was just ugly. And so we had huge turmoil organizationally and um, the chief abruptly resigned and the, the interim chief came in and it was a guy who, Ron Louie, who had hired me, he was a chief when I was hired, who's just incredibly progressive absolutely believes in doing innovative things and was like, okay. He called me on the Monday that he took the interim job and said, okay, Rich, I'm going to, I'm going to open the door for you to do this, but understand this is going to be the end of your career. Wow. There's the, there's, there's the wisdom. So I was a police Lieutenant. I was a relatively new police Lieutenant. And I said, okay, fair enough. Let's do this. Yeah. So we, we immediately kind of pulled the trigger on that. And um, within, Within months, we were running two different eight-week cohorts with about 25 cops in each one. Um, And the interesting thing, John, is the moment I advertised that first cohort, I had more people than I could bring into the class.
0: That's awesome.
1: So, um, and then I had people coming to me. I felt really kind of, I struggled with this because, you know, I I remember one of the guys came to me and was like, Rich, I really need to be in this class, man. And, you know, and, and you told me I can't. And I was like, yeah, dude. Um the next one's coming up. So stand by, right? Yeah. So we, um, and and this is a police agency that at the time was, um, we probably had about, probably had about a hundred police officers. Um, we probably had about 45 of those working in the patrol division. So we trained over the course of about nine months, we trained 52 police officers. Um, we studied that and we got just phenomenal data and, um, It was kind of a, it was a pilot, so we didn't do a randomized control trial or anything like that at this time, but we got good data, and the data we got was that we're improving compassion and empathy, we're improving sleep and pain management, um, and some other really good measures. We didn't do any biometric measures with that particular study, but we established, one, that you can train cops in mindfulness, and they stay in the room. (laughs) <laughs> some don't though. Some leave. Yeah. We we literally had some like, okay, this is bullshit. I'm out of the room. Like, okay, yeah. fair enough. And we totally gave them permission to do that. But we established you can do it. We established we get good outcomes. And and I still remember, you know, we're debriefing the the week number eight. We got a couple of night shift coppers, you know, sitting in this yoga room. They're leaning up against the wall, kind of, you know, being being good cops, right? And yeah. I'm like, I don't know, Rich, I don't know if this really helped me much. But, you know, my wife tells me I'm not such an asshole. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> you, know, that's you know, so maybe we should survey the, the, the wives and find out, you know, how things are going.
0: Oh, that's so, a great idea. Um, well, right. Yeah. And so
1: we, um, so we moved from that training uh, to some other research outside of that police agency um, more broadly. We did randomized control trial and we got consistent data. We also saw uh, cortisol levels uh, become more regulated, lower awakening cortisol response. Um, So really great data. We partnered with other universities, um, University of Wisconsin and Madison, uh, Richie Davidson's team there, and we partnered with them and they they delivered some uh, really phenomenal training, just published their research show last fall. So they, they got all the similar data that we got, and they got reductions in post-traumatic stress dis- disorder symptoms wow. among police officers. So we're, we're the data is there. Um, there's no question that the science and the evidence of the training both support training in mindfulness skills for any kind of operator, right? It doesn't matter if you're a cop or firefighter or a medic or a military member, um, the data is front and center it's right in front of us for me um i became about 2014 i realized you know i should probably um i should probably teach this stuff you know and i resisted so i wrestled with this thing called mindfulness i wrestled with god do i really want to do this you know i had to make some tough decisions about well if i could leave i could leave my agency i could go work somewhere else um And so I started applying for other senior police jobs and I went to Colorado and applied for one. Um, and I got the job offer and in a, I spent a day just roaming the Rocky mountains and I just, I just, I had to call the chief and say, Hey, thank you so much. I'm so sorry. I can't do this. Yeah. Um, and that was my pivot point was in the middle of the Rocky mountains on a sunny, cold March day to go, all right, I gotta, I gotta do this. I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta become a trainer, and I gotta be this weirdo who's gonna go, <laughs> go train, you know. And so I was fortunate enough, John. I'm just so grateful. I was fortunate enough to um, get into the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center training program, nice. and, um, and I still remember, I still remember my interview via, I think it was Skype with uh, Diana Winston, who runs the center, and she's just kind of like really unsure of me, you know. She's like. Are you sure you're gonna be okay with this? We we kind of do some stuff that you might make you uncomfortable, <laughs> you yeah. know? And I was just like but this is the point. I, I said, Diana, I said, I am no stranger to discomfort, right? And 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 she's like, Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that, right? Yeah. So um, so I went through that program in 2015 and uh, you know, somehow convinced them that I was okay to become a mindfulness trainer. And uh, and then that was, you know, five years ago, it hit the road running and I haven't stopped since. Um, and, and that note about discomfort, John, and this is your world too. And this is a world in so many ways for all of us that mindfulness is not about relaxing. It's right. not about, Oh, I'm going to find peace in mindfulness. Truth is it's kind of a fist fight. And, and interestingly enough, there was a fist bite with yourself, right? right? And, but the beautiful thing about it is none of us, no, no veteran, no first responder who comes to mindfulness is a stranger to discomfort. And the, and the amazing thing about mindfulness is it makes us more skillful at being uncomfortable. Right. And once we, once we step into that, it makes us more skillful at finding joy in discomfort. And, and that's just like opens up all kinds of possibilities to feel, kind of melancholy about one thing and feel joy about another at the same time in the same moment. And we can do that right now, right? We're all kind of experiencing the opportunity to be like, well, wow, yes. you know, like you think about my, think about my daughter who's really grieving the loss of so many of the rituals of her senior year in high school. Yet right. she's also able to find joy over here with these other things. And um, so yeah, discomfort is really about, it's about what we're doing with mindfulness. It's getting
0: uncomfortable. So definitely. And, you know, getting uncomfortable, being able to process things that you haven't processed before, being aware of some of the things that you are uh, uh, emotionally feeling that you may not have been aware of before. And now because you are aware of them, now you can process them because not only do you have the tools to be aware, you have the tool to process. Uh, So yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, uh, and you covered a a lot there. I I have, I have this list of questions and kind of in front of me, but, Uh, I think you answered like 90% of what I was going to ask. So it's, it's a
1: great, um,
0: as far as
1: can can, can I, can I, can I tag on to what you just said about processing? Please. Here's what's, here's where I become kind of the contrarian inside a system. (laughs) I am, I based on what I've observed in the last 25 years as a first responder and in the military, um, we are, frequently fragilize occupational stress and trauma. We fragilize our people. So instead of saying, hey, John, well, uh, the conversation frequently is, hey, John, man, dude, are you okay? Hey, you need help, right? Yeah. And, and so your internal response is some sort of expletive go away from me because you're not helping <laughs> me, right? Right. Um, and so instead, we, we, have a, we have a fixed victim mindset around trauma. And so what I mean by that is we, we even still train this way. We train our warriors such that, and I use the term warrior very broadly. We train our warriors such that um, we have this idea that trauma happens to us. So it happens to us, we have to armor up and try to right. survive it, right. right? And and I understand this superficially what we're trying to say, but there's a, there's a smarter, more evidence-based way to approach that. So then what happens when you get trauma injured, and you will, and that's the thing, you will be trauma injured. If you're in these professions, stand right. by. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But when you get injured, then we see you as broken. You see yourself as broken because of how the lens through which the mindset of this fixed victim mindset around trauma and it is not serving us well. We are creating more injury on top of injury with this with this fixed fragilization around trauma. And so what I'm proposing is a growth mindset. And borrows a bit from Carol Dweck's work out of Stanford with mindset. Um it's kind of a modification of that, but a growth mindset says. And if I were standing, I'd I'd put my arms to my side with my, with my palms facing forward. And I would, I would step into the room with you and I'd say the growth mindset says I've chosen this, I've chosen this path, right? I've chosen this path to step into human suffering and to take action, to do something about it, right? Right. And I know the data tells me lived experience, the wisdom of lived experience tells me I will be trauma injured over the course of my career. Probably not just once, probably multiple times in ways that I really don't know what that's going to look like. And I am a resilient, badass warrior. I can train for it. I can skillfully be in distress, be in injury and perform my tradecraft, whatever it is. And when the time is right, because I'm skillful in awareness and compassion, I can make informed decisions about the interventions necessary to move into recovery and healing. And if the stars are all aligning, maybe even post-traumatic growth. Yeah. And so that mindset is not one that is, that we're teaching and that part of my mission is to shift to a growth mindset. No, it's not naive in any way at all. So now the conversation is, Hey John, that was a, that was a wicked deployment, man. And so, um, there's no question that that a lot of that shit's still rolling around in your head and your heart and your body. So the question yeah. I have for you, John, is, is what kind of interventions are you going to choose to move into recovery? It's not, you need help. Yeah. It's not, you should, you need, because that's, we never ought to be directing people, you know, like saying you should do this. I mean, there's maybe a time for that, you know, but that's more of a very hierarchical thing. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's how can I serve you in making your informed choices to move into interventions, right? And those interventions oversimplified, but from my world, I have just four categories of intervention and you have integrated medicine. So this is where your medical doctor lives. This is where your, um, your nutritionist lives. This is your acupuncturist. This is your, your structural reintegration person, your yeah. chiropractor, right? This yeah. is where the whole world of integrated medicine lives. Um, this and then the second intervention is psychotherapy it's it's or I like to say it's a mental health coach right so who's my mental health coach and and, and that's critically important the third intervention is social connection we know this right got to stay socially connected got to cultivate those relationships and, yeah. and maintain those relationships and then the fourth one is the pursuit of spirit and awe you know maybe that's a faith practice for people um, and maybe it's something different, you know, maybe it's hiking the Rocky mountains or surfing, you know, off the beach or whatever, but it's, it's experiencing the world and appreciating the beauty of the world is bigger than we are. You know, it's going to theater. Um, I mean, there's some really great research out there about, uh, Bo Lotto is a neuroscientist out of the UK did some research in Las Vegas where he studied the brains of people who watched, um, Cirque du Soleil performances, yeah, and there's some amazing, just really beautiful data around that. But he's basically studying awe and how do we seek awe, right? And so those four interventions are both preventative and and in response to an injury, right? So I don't just see a psychotherapist when I'm feeling distressed. Right. I see my I see my mental health coach on a regular basis because. What we know about human performance and the data around occupational stress and trauma injury is that it totally makes sense, right? And um, yeah, and so that's how I frame trauma. You know, I'm moving from this, this overused notion of trauma-informed, which sort of drives me mad, to, okay, fair enough, I can be trauma-informed, but, but the question really is, am I trauma-competent? And trauma-competent means I can act within trauma skillfully. Yeah. And still get injured. Still get injured. So this isn't some sort of, you know, delusion that, oh, I'm trauma competent. I'm never going to get injured. No, you're going to. And and, because that's because that's the profession you've chosen. And thank you for choosing that profession. And you're a badass. You can through this. And it's going to suck. Yeah. Right. It's going to take work. So that's. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, And that recovery may take weeks. It may take years. Yeah. and in some cases it's a lifetime of work right there's a level of trauma and injury that's a lifetime of work for all of us so what right it's right. okay it actually gives us it gives us insight and wisdom we never would have had and the opportunity to see the world in its beauty even through all the stuff that gets in the way of that
0: yeah yeah i love that kind of reframing of of the mindset that that needs to happen, and hopefully with time it, it's going to happen. I think uh, these practices are becoming more proactive than reactive. I mean, just writ large, they're getting more readily accepted. But now now the military, uh, I see them starting to implement them on the on the proactive side and not just the reactive side. And I, I it looks like what you're doing uh, with your organization is definitely proactive. I'm curious. Um, both in your time in law enforcement and and now, do you, did you have any reservist military that were working with you in law enforcement that uh, you introduced these practices to as well?
1: Yes, let me talk about that in a second. I'm gonna switch my internet network, so stand by. Okay. Okay. You're back with me here. I, I just, am. Um, yes. Yeah. I wanted to, wanted to get to a little stronger network. Sorry. Um, no, you're good. So if I understood the question, John, it was, um, have I worked with military reservists? Um, yes. So what, what was amazing was I learned so much, um, in the, in the two thousands in the mid two thousands from our returning combat veterans and many of whom we hired. Yeah. Um, and so, you know there was there was one in particular who went through some training with me and um really he kind of he came to me after this training and said you know hey lt i'm really um i can't stop thinking about this this incident in in fallujah right his very first combat tour um army national guard okay so you know but he's he's right now i think he's got four combat tours under his belt, you know, as, as, still as a young man. Right. And, um, and so I could hear the judgment in his, in his own words of like, man, I really shouldn't be still thinking about this. And so I just yeah. listened to him and, and I'm not a mental health clinician. I never pretend to be, I always know my boundaries. I stay in my swim lane. Um, and, um, and it was just really interesting, you know, And then he, he, he talked to me about, um, almost this guilt or shame around still, still being in, in the thinking around this. Right. And it was, it was, you know, a few years back and at that time in history. And I just, I found it really interesting that um, that he struggled with this still being a part of him, you know? And so the, the thing that I did as a peer really not as a clinician was just to say, Hey man, um, why shouldn't you be thinking yeah. about this? It's part of your history, man. It's part of your scar tissue. It's It's part of the wisdom that, that uh, of your warrior path. And um, should you absolutely go see a psychotherapist and and try to bury this? I said, I don't know that that's the, that that's necessarily the appropriate response. Only you know how you need to work with this. Um, but there's lots of interventions to work with that. Right. And so my point about this, John, is that so often what happens with mindfulness training is that we open up to things that, that we hadn't been paying attention to. And what it does for us, it doesn't solve the problem, if you will. And it, yeah. it, it, it illuminates emotion, it illuminates physical sensations in the body, it illuminates thinking, that allow us to make choices about, okay, what do I do with that now? Right. And in some cases, people may choose, okay, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna periodically think about that. I'm gonna periodically maybe wake up about with with dreams about that. And and that's okay because now I've learned this skill. To, to regulate my physiological response, to bring some acceptance and compassion with that. And maybe, maybe I'll talk to my psychotherapist about that. Maybe I'll talk to my medical doctor about that. Um, but I got this, right? Now, I'm not talking about acute trauma injury that's completely, that creates tremendous dysfunction in our lives, right? Um, I'm just talking about the normal stuff that emerges, that, that sort of bubbles to the surface when we sit and pay attention. Right. Um, So so that's one example of working with with someone Um, I've worked with a a number of Marines who are uh, former Marines and some that were uh, still, you know, in the in the in the reserve program who are cops and you know, well, first the warriors, of all, all, all,
0: the, all the Marines that are listening are going to say once a Marine, always a Marine.
1: I know, I know, I know. That was a, that was a, that was a, a fun coasty thing to say, just to, <laughs> I'm trying to light up, light up some physiological response to the listeners. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. My, my Marine friends know that I'm kind of just messing with them there. Um, I can't miss that opportunity. Right. <laughs> um, but thank you, John. Thank you for being, being a, being a good, uh, a, a good, a good warrior there for them. Uh, <clears throat> but the, uh, these, these combat veterans get it. I mean, they, they connected to mindfulness, you know, there wasn't a lot of resistance. There wasn't a lot of like, Oh, okay. This is kind of weird, but okay, let me try this. Okay. Yeah. This kind of makes sense. Um, and so what I haven't done until recently is specifically train veterans. And, um, I've done a little bit of that and, and I love it. I love working with that population. Um, yeah. So
0: pretty awesome, uh, pretty awesome group. And there's a lot of camaraderie there much like there is in the law enforcement world. So there's a lot of similarities. Um, I'm sure, um, as far as, uh, when you do first tell someone, um, or rather you're teaching someone cause you don't want to tell them what they should be doing. Right. Like you mentioned before, but if they are interested in starting a practice, how do you tell them to start? Uh, if if they don't go through your training per se, if they're just curious about starting on the side, what is it that you tell them to do?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, this is tough, John, because I, I, having done research and having worked in this field for a while and really observing what works, what doesn't work, um, there's value in just exploring. So there's value in, um, you know going to this thing called the interweb right and kind of exploring <laughs> hey is there is there a youtube video that there's someone talking about meditation there's plenty of of sort of remote learning resources um and so what i typically will do is i'll suggest maybe they go find an app that is is helpful so whether it's 10% happy or headspace or you know sam harris's app or You know any number of apps that are—they're all really credible and helpful—and maybe just kind of diving into that um, as some exploration. You know, sometimes people want to read a book or you know some other research, and I can point them to that. Um, But you know what I'm really finding is that there's some kind of necessary, um, some kind of immersion training, whether it's one day or a retreat or something like that—that's really not always necessary, but most of the time necessary for people to begin a practice. They need to have some kind of in-depth skills training by a coach that allows them to go, oh, I get it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's really, that's important. But absent of that, um, just exploring with the resources that are out there, um, what we're not seeing in, in our research anyway, qualitatively is, is that apps are all that successful in helping people maintain a meditation practice.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, they're helpful, but I think they're, they they augment. And one thing that I'm super interested in is just how the pandemic is going to, for all of us is going to pivot, you know, offerings that we're doing with meditation, uh, skills training and what that looks like. Oh, but, no doubt. No doubt.
0: Yeah, so a couple of questions there. Uh, so what does your personal practice look like? And then, uh, first of all, and then second, since you mentioned the pandemic, it's the Mindful Badge, right? That's, uh, that's your organization. Yeah. What is the Mindful yeah, Badge yeah. doing to uh, kind of pivot and shift during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so um, my personal practice is, um, like my personality, it, it varies. Um, I will, I will frequently get up in the morning before anyone else is up and, um, sit for a short meditation practice. Um, I have, I've used insight timer. It's insight timer is kind of my go-to app, um, because there's so much offering there and I kind of know what I want. I know what I might need so I can find it and use it. Um, so I'll go through like a, I went through recently a compassion course on Insight Timer, and you know it's like a ten day course, and so I've kind of each day I sat with that, um, and sometimes I'll just sit in silence. I also have a pretty strong informal practice, so I think that, you know, mindfulness practice is about integrating and embodying, and so we sit in a formal meditation in order to be able to move through the rhythms of our our daily life and to be more aware more compassionate and so i think there's moments of just awareness that are embodied in my daily rhythms um you know so what does my practice formal practice looks like sitting meditation most days not all and it looks like um being less of an asshole. i guess <laughs> I, I you know i mean yep. um and I think, you know, that feels like success for me, you know?
0: Yeah, um, definitely. That's a good metric. I think that should be on all data uh, and assessments <laughs> <right>? afterwards. <Yeah. laughs>
1: I would agree. I would agree. And we we ask other people, not ourselves, you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what is Mindful Badge doing? So actually, uh, I've been, I spent the last two weeks looking at various um online learning platforms because what i want to do is i want to hybridize my training so when we come out of pandemic i want to be able to offer um training online that augments the training we do on the ground so if you come to a three-day residential retreat there'll be a little bit of read ahead but there'll also be you know three or four weeks of of synchronous follow-up with zoom sessions and that sort of thing um and some more learning some more um yeah, just some more cognitive learning opportunities. So I'm just looking at, you know, what does that look like? And I'm developing some, just some micro trainings that I'm going to be putting up, uh, posting to my website. They're just going to be free. I'm, I'm building one on growth mindset that I'm just going to offer and say, Hey, it's out there. Come to the website, you know, go through the course and and it's not a formal course. It's more of just, here's some, here's some visually appealing information. Right. Um, but i but I want to offer some things that are just gratis, just, Hey, come, come and do this. Nice. And then I'll develop some, I'll develop some more specialized uh, deeper uh, skills training that um, that i will have fees for, but that's down, down the, down the pathway. Um, I'm also partnering with a couple of psychologists from my research team at Pacific university and on, Tuesday afternoons, 1:30 Pacific time. Next week, we'll start this. We're gonna start just doing a 30-minute drop-in session for nice. first responders, veterans, um, with a short bit of of psychoeducation. So a couple of just encouraging, like, hey, you can do this. This is good, you're you're good at distress. One way we get more more good distress is to practice this thing called meditation. Let's do it now, you know. Um, and and so we're gonna do that. There's a saturation, John, of of all these kinds of offerings out there. Um, it's so interesting to me to watch how rapidly, you know, literally, there's not a day, you know, there's not a four hour period in a 24 hour cycle right now that doesn't have some kind of, Hey, come do this thing with me. And, um, so I was a bit reluctant to step into that, you know, like, okay, yeah. you know, so I had, I met with on zoom with, um, with Mike Christopher and Sarah Bowen who are friends and colleagues and, we said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna do it from a from an evidence based platform. We're gonna use psychoeducation and mindfulness skills, bring them together, and just offer a short session for people to kind of get grounded and yeah. and just see see what happens. So we're awesome. gonna do that again. Tuesdays, is one thirty Pacific. Um, well, uh, and, when you
0: when you've got yeah. a, a link for that, uh, please share it with me, and I'll share it in the notes for yeah. the for the both the video and audio side of things. So some, some of our listeners or viewers can jump in on that.
1: Yeah, and one thing that I'm, I haven't figured out how to do this yet, I think I have some ideas, but I'm, I'm going to ask people to register for it. Um, just in this world of Zoom insecurity, I just wanna know who's showing up. Sure, you know? totally. So, um, so there'll be kind of a pre-reg for that and then I'll send information on how to, how to get connected.
0: Cool. Cool. Well, um, the next question, and this, this, uh, recently, uh, came out, I think it was earlier this week or maybe last week cause the the mindfulness movement movie, um, mm. I've, I've, uh, registered for it or purchased it and uh, I'm going to be watching it here in the next couple of days. Um, can you tell us about the movie and how you came to be a part of that?
1: Yeah, I haven't, I've started watching it, but I haven't finished it, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it looks like. Um, so, I don't know, it was maybe four years ago or so, I got, a, I got a call from this guy, Rob Beamer, and he's like, hey, Rich, I'm uh, making this documentary film, and um, I've heard about some of the work that you're doing with the police, and you know, are you doing anything in the near future that I could come film? And I was like, well, it just happens that I'll be in uh, the Bay Area um, doing this training. And you know, so I gave him the dates, and he showed up with his film crew, and they filmed what we were doing. He interviewed me, uh, he interviewed uh, Chief Jennifer Tejada with Emeryville Police Department, um, who's just a real champion of mindfulness in policing. And the next thing you know, I'm part of his documentary film. So, I mean, it was really kind of one of those weird things. I think I was, uh, the work I was doing, he had some visibility on and it was a convenient way for him to come in. So, but more more broadly, you know, Rob's mission was to show the world How mindfulness is is being integrated into all these different spaces, you know. And there's so many diverse spaces that, um, if you look at, you you look at the film. And again, I've started watching it, but you just you look at the places that mindfulness is showing up, and it's showing up for a reason. Not because it's trendy, but it's showing up because it's transforming people's lives in small ways, not not ways of grandeur. You know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, you know, levitate or you know. you know get bat wings and fly or anything like that but we micro transformations really are are amazing and that's that's where that's the space which we train in mindfulness is the ability just to you know be more attentive and more compassionate and um and the film i think is just it's phenomenal that it shows all these diverse places tells some stories of people um that are just fun to hear and you know i think just really encouraging for folks so
0: that's great i'm looking forward to watching it and i'll uh, shoot you a text uh, after i do just to let you know my thoughts but i'm sure it's gonna be great from the previews i've watched it looks like it's fantastic and i'm i'm a fan of of jewel too so (laughs) i think it's gonna be good so oh she's
1: amazing and her story is so gritty and so real yeah i love it yeah
0: well what's uh what's next for you
1: rich you know um it's been a year since i retired um the pandemic has has brought for all of us like some unexpected um, yet predictable, um, you know, environment of slowing and, and change. Uh, I I want to continue doing this work. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I think for the next five or six years, this is the work I want to do. Um, the the my most favorite training that I deliver, John, is a three day residential immersion training. You know, it's funny we. I partnered with some, um, some really talented teachers about seven or eight years ago. And we put out a advertisement for a five day retreat for first responders. And of course, you know, people are like, what five day retreat, that's not happening. <laughs> and, and as soon as I finished my training at UCLA, I connected with, um, a guy named uh, Brian Beekman, who's a Lieutenant at Bend police department in in Oregon. And I said, Hey dude, let's do a three day retreat. And so we found a retreat center in Bend and we started doing twice a year, these three-day residential retreats and they're intense. They're awesome. Um, so I really, that kind of, that, that's the focus. I love doing that training. That's where I want to sort of specialize. Um, and, and also do other kinds of training models um, and partner with other talented people. And the really cool thing right now is there's so many talented people that are doing similar work you know guys like you and and others who um you know there's so much possibility for all of us to just find small ways to collaborate and uh, support each other and and really just keep the vision of of how mindfulness can transform the world and and make us all more compassionate skillful warriors and also just humanitarians and and there's no difference between those two so
0: right i love that man that's uh absolutely one thing that I you know I'm I'm trying to do is collaborate with people like you and um and I saw on LinkedIn yesterday uh, Michelle Palladini had commented on one of your uh, your posts I, as a matter of fact I think it was about the mindfulness movement movie and uh, I'm having her come on in a couple of weeks um there's uh there's definitely a a movement going on so the mindfulness movement is appropriate the the name of the movie. Um, and definitely yeah. happy to collaborate and uh, and look forward to to further collaboration down the road. Um, coming to the end of the show here, Rich, what have we not talked about that you'd like our listeners to to hear?
1: You know, um, I made a note here uh, about guard and reserve. Um, I think John, you astutely pointed out just how difficult it is for members of the guard and reserve to balance all the different things, and you know one of the things that at any given time, a, a, a member of the guard or reserve is balancing at least three domains. So they're balancing their military career. They're balancing their, their professional career, civilian career, and they're balancing family. Right. right? And they probably have other things in there too, but those are like maybe the three biggest domains. And at any given time, one of those is out of balance. This is the reality, right? Yeah. At any given time, one of those is out of balance. And yet, when we, we train ourselves and we hold expectations to ourselves that, um, that I can balance it all. I can have this notion of work-life balance. Um, it, it, it's not realistic. It won't happen. And what frequently happens is the self judgment that emerges is really debilitating. Right? So we, we feel badly. We feel, we feel like we're, um, a failure because we can't balance all of these things. And for the guard and reserve members, um, striving for work-life integration right striving for the ability to work with all of these things that won't always be rarely will be in this perfect balance um is the real world and mindfulness skills training helps us to understand that to accept that and to skillfully work with the imbalance that's naturally that naturally emerges as a result of having two careers that are impossible to have in in perfect synchrony so You know, I spent a lot of years, like, suffering trying to manage that. You know, especially as, as a senior officer, you know, spending a whole lot more time than just simply a week and a month. Um, and that's for most people now. No, no matter what you know rank you are, you're, you, you're really running hard. Um, balance may not be achievable, but we can skillfully work with the imbalance. And and maybe that's a segue to another conversation. But uh, I just felt compelled to toss that out there for, you know, my brothers and sisters in the garden reserve. Definitely. Uh, I, I, again, uh, one more, one more comment that I love, man. This is a, uh,
0: this has been an awesome show, Rich. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, and, and definitely there's going to be so much here that resonates with uh, the listenership. So thank you for, again, for your time. If people wanted to reach out to you afterwards to find out more about Mindful Badge or the movie or just you in general, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you?
1: My website, mindfulbadge.com, uh, email richard at mindfulbadge.com. And uh, yeah, those are the, those are the routes to get a hold of me.
0: Easy enough. I'll make sure those are also in the, in the show comments. So Rich, thanks again, man. This has been enlightening. Uh, very much enjoyed getting to know you, finally connecting with you uh, and definitely look forward to uh, future collaboration and discussion. So thanks very much. For our listeners and viewers, thank you again for listening to or watching our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We too are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button here on the podcast or here on YouTube. Leave us a comment, a review, a like, and again, share it with anyone you feel needs to hear our message. And remember, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority,
1: improving and saving lives.